0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola, a Tier 1 solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. Call 415-570-2647 to find your local representative or go to renasola.us. For the week of April 30th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from GreenTech Media. Hello all, welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with GreenTech Media in Washington D.C. Appreciate you being with us this week. The US wind industry picked back up in 2014. But can it get beyond the boom-bust cycles that have plagued it for so many years? This week, we'll talk with the CEO of the American Wind Energy Association about how to keep growth strong. Then we'll take a look at the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, a new document from a group of academics, scientists, and analysts outlining a human-based approach to environmentalism they call the Good Anthropocene. Finally, we'll turn to the devastation in Nepal and ask whether distributed renewables can play a more prominent role in disaster response. Here with me, as always, to talk about these subjects are my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine's in Washington, D.C., as always. She is a partner with the cleantech public policy firm, 38 North Solutions. How are you?
1: Great. I had a chance to have breakfast this morning at the British Embassy. In fact, one of uh, Tom's colleagues was there, Rob Gramlich, and um, we got to talk with Sir David King, who's the head of climate change for the U.K.
0: Sipping tea or coffee?
1: I was having coffee out of necessity, but a lot of people were
0: drinking tea. <laughs> Jigger Shaw is in New York. I have no idea if he's drinking coffee, tea or eating another bowl of cereal. He is the president of Generate Capital. How are you, sir?
2: <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing really well.
0: Do you have your bowl of
2: checks in front of you? No, you know, I've uh, I've eaten. I'm good. I'm like, you know, on the cottage cheese thing right now. <laughs>
0: Well, our guest this week comes to us from Washington, D.C. as well. It is Tom Kiernan, the CEO of the American Wind Energy Association. Tom took the helm at AWIA in 2013. And before that, he was president of the National Parks Conservation Association for a decade and a half. And we've invited him on to talk about wind policy, technology changes, and cottage cheese. No, just kidding. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
3: Stephen, great to
0: join you and Catherine and Jigger. Really appreciate you being here. As if trying to increase budgets for the national park system wasn't hard enough, you're, you're now taking the lead of an organization in the middle of some pretty fierce political fights here in Washington. You're a glutton for punishment, eh?
3: Well, I don't know about that. I'm thrilled to be a part of a we in the wind industry. It's an exciting, dynamic, growing industry with an extraordinary future. We do have our challenges, but that's what, uh, that's what gets me be- out of bed in the morning and enthusiastic to be at work. So a lot of good work ahead of us. So let's take a w- look at where wind is at the moment. Last year, we saw
0: just over 4,800 megawatts of projects installed in the U.S., and that was four times what was installed in 2013, making it the largest source of new generation in the country. Uh, looking at the numbers, you have your yearly report that, that looks at jobs at project growth at economic economic indicators what stood out to you as the most important indicators of where the wind industry is at
3: well i think the fact that we grew four times in 2014 what we did in 2013 is obviously a key number a key indicator of the gaining momentum of the wind industry another fact uh, back in 2013 we had about 50,000 jobs in de- in the industry and we added another 23,000 jobs in 2014. So we are installing a lot more in the grid. We are adding employees and jobs throughout the country. So we do have significant momentum, obviously, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this, to keep that momentum going and actually growing uh, even faster. We need a multi-year extension of the production tax credit, which has the boom-bust cycle in the past has really held us back. And I think we're poised to get beyond that boom-bust cycle.
0: Uh, One other thing that stood out to me, briefly, since we're talking about that yearly report, was that a quarter of power purchase agreements signed last year were with corporate corporate off-takers, which is another trend we're seeing in the solar industry now. So you're starting to see wind really blossom beyond the utility sphere. How how important are these corporate deals to the wind industry?
3: I, I think they're very important. Um, that was a key statistic from this last year, a quarter of the PPA signed being from corporate purchasers. Frankly, I think the word is out that wind energy is affordable. It's reliable. You've got guaranteed prices out 20, 30 years. Uh, it's a win-win. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of it. And we'll see more of it in the coming years.
1: Tom, um, what interests me about this is that as you see investment grow from corporations and non-utility purchases, um, you're sort of teed up to be able to comply with the whole decarbonization that we're looking at with the Clean Power Plan. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you see wind participating in the Clean Power Plan. I know you've been very engaged in that whole process and trying to help states understand what they can do, but I'd love to hear a little bit more from
3: you on that agree with the fundamental premise that the Clean Power Plan that will likely be promulgated by EPA this summer is a huge demand driver for the industry over the long term. Wind energy obviously produces no carbon pollution. um, And I think we will be a key uh, strategy, compliance strategy for states throughout the country. Honestly, obviously, we won't be the only compliance strategy, whether it's solar, efficiency, efficiency obviously some natural gas. So, you know, we're very comfortable, obviously, with other sources being part of the solution. But frankly, wind is, I believe, the biggest, fastest, cheapest source of carbon reductions for this country. And so I think we'll see a lot of states and utilities turning to wind energy as a compliance strategy.
2: So, Tom, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that there seems to be a lot of anti-wind sentiment. And there and there. Interestingly enough, they're actually pro-solar while being anti-wind. I don't understand where that comes from.
3: That's a, that's a fair question. I'm not totally sure, sure of what everybody's motivations or intentions are when they are attacking wind. Obviously, um, many of our opponents out there that are generating other forms of electricity will put out purposefully or accidentally data that we don't think is accurate. Um, I think right now part of our strategy going forward, frankly, is to um, increase the communications from the wind industry, enhance the brand, more clearly communicate to state regulators, to state legislators, to the American public. The value proposition of wind energy, because I think at the end of the day, the truth will prevail. Wind energy is uh, a reliable, low-cost, American-made source of electricity with a lot of benefits, no carbon pollution, no water use, a lot of jobs, and that ultimately will save consumers money. And I think that getting that information out over time will will win the debate. So, Tom, you know one of the things that you and
2: I talked about when we met last time was really around you know my firm belief that I think that large wind would benefit from the PTC just dying just because I think all the uncertainty of the short term um, extensions is a problem but but putting that maybe to the side i 'm curious more about your thoughts around small wind. I mean, you know, like the small wind industry has a 30% tax credit through the end of 2016. I'm not sure that a lot of these 100-kilowatt machines are going to make it um, without that tax credit getting extended. You know, what are you guys doing for them?
3: Jigger? great question. I do want to come back just to the PTC for one moment, and sorry to talk about it so much, but I do think... The industry has shown that the costs are coming down dramatically for the wind industry. We're down 58% in the last five years. We're on a trajectory to be at grid parity. I think the PTC has is doing what the country wanted it to do, and that is to catalyze this extraordinary industry. Now, we're not quite there yet. We are not quite yet at grid parity. We are looking for Congress um, to do a multi-year extension of the PTC, but we do not need it forever um, data is showing that we're getting much closer to grid parity, and I think the right public policy strategy is to extend it for a number of years, and then uh, you know, at some point in the future, we don't need it. And I think the country will be better off um, without it over the long term, even though some of these other sources of electricity have their permanent tax incentives. On the distributed wind, I do think it is part of the long-term strategy. Clearly, there's some applications where small and community wind um, meet some of the electrical needs of some of those communities and small users at an affordable price. I don't think um, their growth will be astronomical, but there will be some significant growth there, as well as for offshore wind, another dimension of our industry.
0: Well, let's talk about the economics of wind here, because it's clear that the industry has reached grid parity. I mean, the DOE wind technologies report showed that wind power purchase agreements are averaging two and a half cents per kilowatt hour, and the cost of wind has dropped 50% from 2009 to 2013. How can how can you continually make the claim that the PTC is needed when the resource is so cheap, that it would be cheaper than a new coal plant uh, even without the PTC? And and I'm not saying this to single you out because the solar industry is at an early stage of having this conversation as well, and we've asked the same thing about PV when it eventually has to make this decision. But where do we draw the line? Because it seems to me that wind really is cheap enough.
3: I think the key observation is those purchase power agreements that are at a very low price are in key isolated unique places of the country where we've got some transmission already in place where we've got a wind resource where we what we're looking for is grid parity more than in just key parts of texas or iowa or kansas we believe over time that there's significant we know there's significant wind resources in other parts of the country you know whether it's michigan whether it's the southeast so what we're looking for is grid parity on a national level and as we approach that then you know, we can talk about the PTC not being needed. Um, we want to be able to compete geographically throughout the country, not just in a few isolated places or markets.
1: Yeah, one thing I think people should be aware of that would be helpful, Tom, for you to talk a, a minute about is the other issues that that can pose substantial cost or barriers to the industry, like permitting, siting, interconnection, that there's still things that the industry has to overcome in order to continue to grow the way it is.
3: Boy, Catherine, I think you are so right in asking that question. When we as an industry look at the suite of Frankly, some of the, the siting challenges, some of dealing with some of the endangered and threatened species and other species, the regulatory uncertainty, the permitting uh, lack of clarity uh, or not really have a permitting process, that uncertainty and the cost of of trying to navigate some of those regulatory um, challenges is significant for the industry. And what we're trying to do with uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, Department of Interior and others is trying to streamline some of those processes and, and frankly trying to get some clarity so we can get some decisions and some permits so it can be an efficient permitting process. As just uh, two years into this industry, I will say I think the industry is very serious about minimizing its wildlife impact, improving its siding, um, even though frankly its its current wildlife impact is percentage-wise quite small. The industry is genuine in wanting to improve it, but we need the federal government and the state governments to to help us in having a clean smooth permitting process so we can kind of protect the wildlife we need to protect but do it most efficiently
0: and i'm sort of anticipating a question from jigger here and jigger please uh, follow up on this if you'd like but in our conversations uh, jigger and, and and others have argued that the wind industry should really be putting the millions of dollars it spends on lobbying for the ptc behind many of these local regulatory issues and behind stopping the fights against renewable portfolio standards, and that that perhaps could be better money spent. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Jigger. Perhaps you can follow up on that, and then I'd love to get your response, Tom.
2: I think it's, it's it, I understand, since everyone lives in Washington, D.C., why they think Washington, D.C. is so important, but honestly, I think the money would be better spent at the state level.
3: And I think if I can jump in, I think Jigger's uh, point is valid in that that's what we're going to see with the implementation of the Clean Power Plan. Uh, the rule will come final this summer over the next couple of years. State by state by state will be coming forward with their implementation plans. I think the debate, the, the uh, discussions are going to be occurring at the state level at each of these states where we'll be talking about the RPS. We'll talk about siding. Um, so the influence, it will be at the state level as we kind of roll out the implementation of the Clean Power Plan. So I think Jigger will get his wish at the end of the day.
0: Tom Kiernan is CEO of the american wind energy association and he joined us from washington dc tom thanks for your time
3: oh sp- spectacular to join you Stephen and Catherine and jigger thank you for uh, including me on the show
1: i was really glad we got to hear from the wind industry for a change too thanks so much
0: tom let's get a word in here about our sponsor rena sola has been manufacturing solar panels since 2008 but the company is also a major distributor rena is now offering bundled equipment solutions as part of its distribution business the company produces solar panels, inverters, and racking systems and puts them all together to help you make your operations more efficient. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing Renesola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And think about the time you could save as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 global subsidiaries. Call 415-570-2647 to find your local rep today Or go on over to renaSola.us. Over the last year, a debate has emerged in climate circles around use of the term good Anthropocene. Advocates of the term say it's time to embrace the fact that humans are having an outsized impact on the earth and that we should use that power for good to help the environment. Critics of the term say it's an overly techno-optimistic view that delays action and forces people to ignore the immediate problem of climate change. The latest addition to the debate comes from the Breakthrough Institute and a group of affiliated intellectuals in a report called Eco Modernism. The manifesto outlines a broad philosophy on using technology to decouple human activity from environmental impacts, and here's a quote from the report. Intensifying many human activities, particularly farming, energy extraction, forestry, and settlement, so that they use less land and interfere less with the natural world, is the key to decoupling human development from environmental impacts. These socioeconomic and technological processes are central to economic modernization and environmental protection. Together, they allow people to mitigate climate change, to spare nature, and to alleviate global poverty. So, the report itself was short on specifics and big on vision, um, and it naturally got people debating this issue. So, let's break it down and, and get our own opinions here. Catherine, how did you react to the report? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, this whole concept, the eco-modernist, and I don't know what it is about manifestos. It seems like everybody's coming out with a manifesto these days. But the the concept, when you read it, sounds, first, very logical. A good Anthropocene demands that – this is a quote from them – demands that humans using their growing social, economic, and technological powers to make life better for people, stabilize the climate, and protect the natural world. That sounds great. But when you get down into what are they really saying here – um it just it starts breaking apart. And I, I do not understand how you can decouple human well-being from economic impact from environmental impacts without having a negative environmental impact. Like what happens to the externalities that you have to think of with industrialization and with developing energy? They also, the other thing that stuck out at me is that they really do pick winners. So they've picked three technologies: next generation, solar, advanced nuclear, fission and nuclear fusion. Those are the three things they mentioned. And they're very specific on those technologies. Um, but they don't deal with sort of a whole other range of technologies that are working now and that can work even better in the future.
0: Well, let's let's talk about your first point there, because I think a lot of the reaction that I've read is similar to your initial reaction. But what I'm trying to figure out is what's the alternative, right? I think we can all accept that. in society will get increasingly industrialized that humans will continue to have an impact on the world so shouldn't we try to harness our power for environmental good and um create economic opportunities that therefore pull people out of poverty and get them thinking about the environment more. That's their basic argument, and that's what they argued back in 2004 in their essay, The Death of Environmentalism. That really speaks to me, and I'm just trying to figure out, like, what's the alternative? And I haven't quite seen people um, in their criticisms propose
2: any good alternatives. I just find that these conversations lack substance, right? What what are the next steps? What are the next 40 pages that comes out of this, Right. If you want to build energy dense technology, which is really what they're saying, they say they don't really like wind because it's not energy dense enough. They don't like some of this other stuff because it's not energy dense enough. They really don't single out wind,
0: but they do imply, yeah,
2: right. But then, if you want energy density and you want nuclear, the only way to build, you know, a trillion dollars of nuclear is through direct government involvement. And And I think that's what they're asking for. But we're not there. I mean, do th- you tell me outside of China where we're going to like just get some sort of mandate from the U.S. Congress or the European Commission or the government of India or Brazil, particularly in this day and age of Al Qaeda and ISIS and where we're worried about how nuclear materials Um, go from one country to the next. I mean, we're not, I mean, Iran is probably one of the most modern societies in all the Middle East, and we're all afraid of Iran using nuclear power. So I, I just think that unless they're willing to bring forward ideas on how to solve those conundrums, I just think that this is all just sort of like, God, I wish we could actually live in a wonderful place where, you know, all of these things just happened because someone wrote a nice essay. But they don't happen because someone wrote a nice essay. People like Tom Kiernan are busting their hump every day to figure out how to actually get policy moved. Well, to be fair, they've written plenty
0: of policy papers on how to leverage more R&D for next generation nuclear technologies, how to improve the permitting process for nuclear plants. I think they've done plenty of specifics on this issue. All, all the cop-out. But, here, but, here, but, but, but listen to me. You out. talk about the, the, the political issue for nuclear being so hard. People who have criticized this paper, people like my old boss at Climate Progress, Joe Rome, he wrote uh, in an essay about a a year ago now in response to this good Anthropocene language, he said, we know what we need to do to avoid catastrophic warming quickly embrace a set of policies at a national and global level, including a carbon price that drive emissions down sharply decade after decade. And he argues that this focus on the good Anthropocene ignores that. Well, that's, I mean, look at the political impasse. How is this any less cynical than a plan to promote, you know, economic progress with carbon free energy? I mean, the politics of both are extremely difficult.
1: Right, oh, this, this is, is a po- this is a political document. A manifesto is what that is it, by definition.
0: Right, but I'm saying Jigger is arguing that the politics of leveraging the nuclear industry are extremely difficult, and I'm saying that the politics of doing something major about climate change are equally difficult.
2: Right, but we're making progress. I mean, all I'm saying is is that when I read like the work that you know that that some of the folks who have signed on to this Eco Modernism Manifesto are doing they're largely just railing against the prevailing um, thought pattern, right? They're saying, you know, we don't like solar, we don't like wind, we want more energy-dense stuff. I mean, and now they've changed their tune towards solar, which is an interesting statement all of its own. But, you know, we think energy efficiency has um, all these sort of um, unintended consequences. But then when you say, okay, what do you want to do? They say, well, we need to basically do more R&D, well, that's basically just a Bjorn Lomberg solution, which is like, let's not do anything right now on the deployment side, and let's really just focus on more R and D and more R and D because everyone can agree on more R and D.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I thought, Jigger. Is like, all right, well, say we do what you want us to do. How does that actually spin out? Do you can you spin it out and tell us what the world is going to look like? And that's what they can't do.
2: Well, and we've worked our butt off to figure out how you actually build new transmission, or how do you figure out how to like get permits. Accelerator. How do you do soft cost reduction? Right. I mean, the thing is, is that like I think the nuclear energy industry is actually siding with the wrong side. You know, when you look at Exelon, which is you know part of the nuclear industry, you know they should not be anti wind. They should actually side, which should be low carbon solutions versus high carbon solutions. It shouldn't be you know, like central station versus distributed or renewable energy versus, you know, the other stuff. And that's basically what we're setting ourselves up for right now is, is uh, the nuclear industry and some of these other solutions that are within this manifesto are not necessarily, you know, like working with us politically to figure out how to change the rules.
0: Yeah, I think we're arguing about a couple different things here. Clearly, the Breakthrough Institute and others have argued in the past that, uh, mainstream renewables are not ready to solve the climate challenge, and that natural gas, nuclear, and other high density technologies are what we should be pursuing but then there 's this language issue right and and this is sort of what i 've been focused on as i 've read the paper because they 've br- they briefly touched on technologies they think are viable, but mostly it was all about saying we need to use technology to make agriculture more efficient to make cities more efficient. Um, as more people move into them, uh, to bring more energy to energy po- people in energy poverty. And I-, I have a hard time understanding why people, from a language perspective, are arguing against that. We can have a very solid debate around what technologies are ready to do the job today, but from A framing issue. I really like where this paper is going. I think it's why the death of environmentalism spoke to me when that essay first came out. And I haven't quite seen anybody argue against this framing in a way that's compelling to me
1: let me give you an analogy here on the food industry. I don't know that much about how food, you know, happens, except that back, you know, in more agrarian times, companies decided to make things easier for especially women who were home having to cook. And so they started doing fast food, making food that was really easy. You could, you know, freeze it, then pop it in the microwave. And basically we ended up eating chemicals. Now, so, So greater technology moves just to make our lives easier and more industrial does not necessarily have a better outcome. So that argument in and of itself, to me, doesn't hold up because now we're going backwards and saying, all right, wait a second, what have we been eating all this time just to make our lives easier? So I think there's a sort of an analogy there that is the way I think about it.
2: Well, and I also think that, you know, part of this manifesto and the death of environmentalism has a similar ring to it that Alex Epstein talks about, right? Which is that the human species is more important than everything else. And I don't know that that's true, right? I mean, pick a number. at 7 billion, 10 billion. I get the fact that it's your family members, or it's people that you love and care about. But at some point, You know, when when do we become the locusts and the cockroaches of the world, right? I mean, when do we actually take more than our fair share of the resources? And I get the fact that we can do things more efficiently here and there and everywhere. But at some point, you know, like we're we're actually farming some ginormous percentage of the earth today. One of the reasons why we're where we are today is that, you know, we're actually cutting down rainforests around the world to make for more agricultural land right? So all of this stuff around, we need to use more technology, we need to do this, we need to prevent that from happening, et cetera. At some point, we do have to acknowledge that the human species has to live within the ecosystem that is the earth. And and they would not
0: argue with that. Um, But the point you bring up is fascinating to me and something I've kicked around for a long time. It's one of the reasons why I invited Alex Epstein on the show, not because I wanted him to Uh, defend fossil fuels, but because I think his philosophy about the human-centric approach to the environment is one that is becoming ever more pervasive and um, certainly something that the Breakthrough Institute and others have espoused. And uh, I just think from an intellectual perspective, it's helpful to understand how these different groups are approaching um, environmentalism. And for a long time, it has been a nature-centric approach, and that is one that speaks to me, but I think we have this now human-centric approach that is starting to become uh, more important in these conversations, and it's helpful to bat it around and talk about what it means exactly.
2: Well, and, and, and the data supports both, right? I mean, like, I mean, the carbon war was really focused on moving us from sacrifice as the frame from Um, you know, Nicholas Stern to, you know, this is the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet on the, and I think Paris is really going to be around opportunity where Copenhagen was around sacrifice. But in California, right, when we were trying to fight that amendment that was trying to kill AB 32, we used health and we used human health and the negative sides of this, not opportunity to pass that, uh, to defeat that, um, that uh, ballot initiative.
0: Well, let's move on and turn our attention to Nepal now, where the the death toll has climbed to more than 5,000 after a 7.8-magnitude earthquake devastated the country last weekend. Military personnel and relief agencies have poured into Nepal in order to execute uh, rescue and recovery operations to provide shelter, food, and energy to the millions impacted. And one technology playing a more prominent role in these relief efforts is solar. The UN Refugee Agency is shipping 4,000 solar lights to Nepal now, and dozens of companies are raising money to ship tens of thousands more. Solar generation, on the other hand, is, a, is a still a very small part of relief efforts, with diesel still dominating as the first form of energy after disasters like this one. So how effective are these solar lighting operations, and can distributed generation play a more prominent role in place of fossil fuels to serve greater needs of energy? Jigger, what's your assessment of where solar technolo- te- technologies now fit into the disaster relief picture? The last time we were talking about solar for disaster relief, it was in 2010 after the Haiti earthquake. And there have been some lessons learned from that and some pretty major technological developments over the last five years. What's your assessment of, the, of solar fitting into disaster relief?
2: Well, you know, I want to start by talking about the fact that we have been thinking about this for a very long time. You know, the Department of Energy actually put out white papers on this back in the 90s. And so this is not like a very, you know, it's not a brand new topic that that we're just thinking about now. I think that one of the challenges is, is and one of the opportunities that we have now, is that FEMA and some of these other disaster agencies around the world, whether it's the Red Cross, etc., um, have stockpiled diesel generators in their warehouses. They haven't been stockpiling solar panels and solar lanterns and power cubes and things like that in their warehouses. And I think that's what's changed in Haiti and now it's what's changed in Nepal is that there are actually solar companies who've had inventory um, in warehouses in Kathmandu. And so as soon as this disaster occurred, they actually, um, you know, immediately were able to ship. Um, goods and services, not because the disaster relief guys uh, changed what they store, but because these guys just happen to have inventory in the country. And I think when you're seeing, you know, some of the things you're seeing is um, solar used for lighting. You know, there's a lot of insurance industry data that shows that when you have a lit area, you have less looting. And so a lot of the uh, solar lanterns are used for um, lighting at night, so that there's less looting. There's also and a solar phone street charger. lights. Absolutely. Solar powered streetlights. And then you've got um, solar mobile phone charging. I mean, one of the biggest challenges in these types of situations is that um, communications are critical to getting things organized and um, keeping your mobile phones charged in this day and age are important. And so solar lanterns are being used for that. I, I mean, I still think that diesel generators are being used for potable water and a lot of other, you know, very important tasks. And so we haven't really, you know... Taken over the entire power needs here, but I think we're making noticeable progress.
1: Yeah, it strikes me that also there's a workforce on the ground. There are entrepreneurs there who are part of the communities that are that are also part of this renewable energy ecosystem. So there, there's there's a community there that can immediately um, not just have the warehouses, but they have the people on the ground, and they don't have to bring them
0: in. Yeah, that's right. I, I think. The solar industry in Nepal is putting up 150,000
2: systems a year. Is that right, Jigger? I don't know the numbers, but what's interesting to me is um, companies like Sun Farmer and others came out of Sun Edison, and, um, and they were working in Nepal. I mean, the reason I'd even known about who to contact in Nepal was just because i have been hit up uh, the last four or five years by solar companies that were doing humanitarian work in Nepal. And so um, we luckily had some infrastructure there.
0: Yeah, SunFunder has been, of course, installing solar PV at health clinics. And uh, the reports I've seen on the ground is that some of these, many of these health clinics and solar systems have been devastated, but you do have a workforce on the ground, as Catherine says, to potentially install solar systems much more quickly. And this goes back to the confluence between energy access at the UN and disaster relief, right? And if you can help set up a local market for these technologies when you have a workforce on the ground you can help people much faster and not have to ship more people in to provide energy but you actually have uh, help on the ground the UN
1: Foundation Sustainable Energy for All Investor Forum was supposed to be in Nepal this week so there is a really big ecosystem that i think has certainly grown out of that you know that that have um that's really kind of been come into play since Haiti
0: I was talking to Rishendra well, Van Leeuwen of, of the United Nations, who we had on this podcast about a year ago now, I think. And she said a couple things have changed since 2010 when um, solar lighting became a big strategy for relief agencies and, and other groups responding in Haiti. And that is that the technology has gotten much better. The batteries are far more efficient. Um, There are standards for these solar lights, so they last longer, they're less apt to break, and uh, that's been a big asset for them as they deploy um, these technologies. And then also they, they learned that they needed to stockpile many of these solar lights, so some of them... They had a a supply problem in 2010 because many of the solar lights were made in Guangdong province in China, and when the earthquake hit in Haiti, it was Chinese New Year, and so they were not able to respond and manufacture lights as needed, so there was a major bottleneck in supply, and they've learned since then. And then finally, they've also learned to stockpile and raise awareness about their efforts because Inevitably, after disaster, there are lots of little groups here and there claiming that uh, they're going to bring solar lights into the country, and many of them are well-intentioned but just don't have the uh, boots on the ground to be able to distribute lights in a way that some of the bigger relief agencies might. So those are some of the lessons learned about distributed energy access since… 2010.
1: Well, no, we were contacted by um, Anya Chernoff of Empower Generation, um, who was raising money through crowdfunding, which was great. Um, they were recognized by CNN as one of the ways they could help, and they had people on the ground and they had lights available. And uh, it was a way for people to really be able to contribute in a way that they thought would be useful to try to help these poor victims.
2: Empower Generation works with women entrepreneurs in Nepal. Um, to help them. And they've got 8,000 lights on the ground now. And so, you know, I'm going to be giving them a big donation. And I know that uh, many of our listeners could as well. I mean, just to put that in perspective, I think we've got about 8,000 weekly listeners. And, um, you know, so if each one puts in 20 bucks, I think that clears her inventory. I and mean, she's personally guaranteeing that inventory, so she can't just give it all away. But, um, but I think if we, can, if we can, you know, raise a little bit of money, um, it's uh, the website's empowergeneration.org. I gave fifty dollars yesterday.
1: Yeah, all my family's joining. <laughs> they uh, they're up to thirty, almost thirty thousand now that they've raised, and their goal is fifty. But their original goal was thirty five, so they're actually doing really, really well.
0: Let's wrap up the show. Tell our listeners something they do not know, something new or novel from the news or from our daily experiences. Uh, Catherine, what do you have this week?
1: Yeah, so this is about my firm. Uh, a few months ago, we opened up an office in Colorado. It It's been going really, really well because Jeff Kramer, the partner out there, has been able to get to a lot more states. Um, Monday, we're going to announce officially another office opening in the Bay Area of California, and that, that completes the cross-country uh, 38 North Latitude tour from D.C. to the Bay Area. So we're really excited. Um, Kelly Knudsen is uh, terrific. He's coming out of the Department of Energy uh, Assistant Secretary's office. He has a Ph.D. in chemistry from Berkeley. He's worked for several members, uh, senators uh, as a AAAS fellow and an energy advisors. So we're super excited that we're going to be having an office to be able to do more
0: work on the West Coast. You're not going to bring the family to the Bay Area?
1: No. <laughs> no, Kelly's going to do that for us. So it, it's good. It'll expand our resources.
0: How about you, Jigger? Tell us something we don't know.
2: Well, a couple things. Um one is that um, um we got a message from our friends in Minnesota and um who you know, basically has been giving us an update on the back and forth between Excel Energy and um, the solar industry. It just seems like a whole bunch of unnecessary drama going on there where some of the rules that were seemingly already in place and locked down around being able to put, let's say, multiple one-megawatt systems next to each other, um, Excel's trying to reverse now that the, the program has gone so well. So, um, you know, shout-out to our friends out in Minnesota and hope they can get that thing resolved.
0: Yeah, well, they came in and they said, I think there were some projects that had co-located like up to 10 megawatts of projects, and they came in and changed the language and said that we only want projects that uh, can be aggregated up to one megawatt. So right off the bat, that kills about 80% of the co-located projects that were in the queue. So people are very, very upset in Minnesota right now.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, well, and rightfully so, because they had gotten that policy pre-approved by Excel last year, and then Excel changed its mind. Um, The other thing I just wanted to highlight was, you know, David, you know, Roberts' reporting at Fox has just been amazing. Um, Really good pieces, one, on the moral case for divestment, which, you know, I've been somebody who's been quite skeptical about divestment, but fantastic Um, article there, and then another one on the inevitability of solar and how, you know, basically 100 years from now, we're definitely all going to be running on solar power. And so um, just, just great, great reporting on his part.
0: He's a fantastic writer. Glad that he's found a home at Vox. I think he'll fit in very nicely there. He and Brad Plumer, two great writers. So the two of them working together really beef up their climate and energy coverage. So I'll start mine with something that we all know. Uh, Tesla is set to announce a new battery system today, just hours from now from our recording. It looks like it'll, it'll be a residential and commercial stationary storage system. Uh, not a huge surprise. We hinted at this in our conversation with Mateo Jaramillo. Um, the company has been deploying these systems in the field for a while now, too. And But Elon Musk is finally ready to talk about it. They have a, a product that uh, they can actually release. We are going to discuss this discuss this on our next podcast, but I'll just say one word about it as a uh, pre-announcement reaction comes in. Some analysts have been skeptical. So John Lavallo at Merrill Lynch called it uh, an announcement to shift investor attention away from Tesla's struggling core auto business. And of course, Tesla's ta- Tesla stock has taken a bit of a hit since last year because of weak sales in China. An investor worries that the company is going to find trouble getting beyond early adopters who will pay a premium for their cars. Um, Lavallo said that uh, you know the razor-thin margins, the, the battery lifespans, and the weak market for residential batteries makes him pretty skeptical. Uh, but over at Deutsche Bank, this guy, Rod Lash, I think that's how you say his last name, had the opposite view, saying that Tesla could add about $4.5 billion in yearly revenues from stationary storage. So uh, just some commentary out there as we await this announcement. We are, of course, anticipating it, and we'll have our full reactions next week when we've heard the full story and know the extent of the product. That's all for our show this week. You can get additional links to stories we discussed at greentechmedia.com podcast. There you can comment and subscribe to the show. If you want to send us comments, questions, story ideas, anything at all that's on your mind, you can email podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Thank you so much to Renesola for sponsoring this show. Thanks to all of our listeners, especially for listening. We wouldn't have this show without you. And uh, thanks to my hosts, Catherine and Jigger. Catherine, have a good week. Thanks, you too. Jigger, talk to you soon. Have a good one. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.